brought her out, and he showed his faithfulness, taking her as out of her grave. Now, as Ephraim again faces captivity, God would again show his faithfulness to his covenant people. And God speaks of the fact that he again will do it, even though she continues to show herself undeserving. The people are not acknowledging God. They're not thanking God. They turn back to idols continually. In response to God's goodness and God's mercy, they pursue the way of their flesh. They're bent, verse 7, on backsliding from me. He calls them to himself and they won't exalt him. But what does God do? Does God say, I've had it. I'm going to cast you off. I want nothing to do with you anymore. No. God says, I am the Lord. I am God. I'm not going to give you up. I'm going to continue to demonstrate my faithfulness to you despite your unbelief, your wickedness, and your gross idolatry. The love of God is unquenchable. And that love of God is seen here showed toward Israel despite her complete unworthiness. God had sworn his covenant with Abraham some 400 years prior. And God's faithfulness to his covenant would be realized. And God asserts that faithfulness. Beloved, that's your and my encouragement this morning. The emphasis of this section of the book of Hosea is on God's triumphant love. A love that will not fail. And a love by which God will gather to himself every last one of his own, despite their unworthiness. And it's to that that we cling. The love of God prevailing even in the most impossible, worst of situations. We have turned our back on a holy and righteous God. We've pursued our own selfish will and our own ways. As we examine ourselves this past week, we've come to the conclusion and the confession of David, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Out of Psalm 51. We saw our sins as against the almighty God. We sinned against others, but ultimately we see the seriousness of it. I've not just sinned against my spouse, my parents, my children. I've sinned against the almighty God of heaven and earth. And as we make that our confession, we realize I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of the blessedness to be called a child of God. I'm not worthy of the blessedness of knowing God as my covenant-keeping God. But God forgives us. In Jesus Christ. And the prevailing theme of the Lord's Supper is the love of God. The unfailing love of God. The marvelous love of God. As God deals with us in love, as a father pities his children. He will not punish us as we deserve. He draws us to himself with a band of love. And he makes us know the joy of that salvation. He causes us to see the wonder of his everlasting love and he humbles us to the dust so that we live then in the conscious joy of what great things this God has done for me. We look at that this morning, drawn with bands of love, noting a grievous yoke. 
a gracious deliverance, and a goodly nourishment. First, the grievous yoke. Israel's reminded of her situation here when she was a child. And that's a reference, of course, not literally to the fact when she was little, but it's a reference to her time when she was under the yoke of bondage in Egypt. A yoke we're somewhat familiar with. A yoke is a big piece of wood that would be placed over the shoulders of an animal. So the animal then would push against that wood and it would enable the animal then to be able to pull more weight than otherwise it would be able to do. And so this yoke was put on the oxen and then they were hitched up to equipment that that would be used to plow or to do other work around the farm and in the fields. The oxen would push against that yoke and that yoke then would be connected to the machinery that would be pulled as a result. Now there were times when a cruel man would unequally yoke his animals. He'd put a large animal with a small animal. And the result then would be that the small animal would suffer as well as the large animal because they were not able to pull together in that yoke. There were times when Israel had to bear a yoke. So that Israel was very familiar with this yoke idea, not just with regard to their interactions with their animals, but the reference to Egypt emphasizes this was something with which they were also persecuted. The Egyptians had put yokes on the men and had required of them to do the labor of animals. Some of them literally were required to be put on that yoke, were treated like animals. Others suffered the experience and that suffering was as a yoke. But Egypt was a picture of great suffering for the Israelites. You remember that history. A pharaoh arose that knew not Joseph. And as a result now, he subjected them to hard, cruel punishment. God's people were required to build the grand cities for the Egyptians. And the pyramids, proclaimed one of the greatest wonders in the world, were likely built also in part by the Israelites bearing yokes. Some literally. How did those rocks get all the way up to the top? Much of it was manpower. The people of God were afflicted greatly at the hands of evil taskmasters. Their children were taken from them, they were killed, and they were required to do the work of animals. The yoke of their suffering was primarily physical to which they were subjected. But the yoke that's being referenced here is not merely a physical yoke. Egypt is typical of the yoke of the bondage of sin. Adam and Eve were the ones that took that yoke on themselves. They forsook the way of obedience. In the garden, they listened to the serpent rather than to the word of Jehovah God. And as a result, they forsook God and they found themselves now in bondage to sin and death. They were now yoked by that yoke of sin. And that yoke was a burden on them that pulled them down. It was distressing. It caused them to see that there was no way they would ever be able to do anything pleasing to God. The only thing they could do was sin. And willingly, they subjected themselves to that yoke of sin, that yoke of bondage, and that yoke of death. 
Now, most don't care about that. It doesn't bother them. But the child of God is bothered by it, by God's grace. God makes the child of God sensitive to sin. And the reality of that yoke due to sin becomes the occasion of godly sorrow in the heart of the one where the Holy Spirit is at work. The one where that spirit is not at work is not burdened by one sin, not willing to confess that sin, continues in that bondage tragically. But the Israelites, by God's grace, knew that yoke of sin. Now we're talking here, remember, not about the Israelites as a nation. We're talking here about the Israelites according to the promise. Not all Israel were of Israel. But God chose to himself a people through whom he would show forth his praise. And for a time, those people were chosen primarily among the Jews. In Israel then, a reference to God's people, God's church. Now all men are sinners, But God only gives his own children the ability to identify that sin and to identify that yoke as bondage. God in his grace gives his children to understand and to know that their natures are contrary to the will of God. God says, love me and love the neighbor as yourself. But in reality the child of God finds himself loving the devil and pursuing his own flesh and his own will. And he's convicted by God's grace. Now Israel was helpless. They were entirely dependent upon God and upon his goodness. And they knew the need of sacrifice. They knew the need of worship. And they gave evidence of that so that they brought their sacrifices. They brought their worship. God gave them prophets, priests, and kings who were directing their attention to their sin, not only, but also to the way of deliverance. They needed a savior. They needed a deliverer. And God gave them prophets who pointed them to the reality of that deliverer. God would raise up a Messiah. He would give to them one who would deliver them from that yoke, that bondage of sin. God here reminds Israel of how merciful, how good he had been to them. In that context, he had delivered them from Egypt. He brought them out from under that grievous yoke. And again, not just a physical, but a picture of God taking us out of the bondage of sin and death and bringing us into the Canaan, the wonder of his love and his everlasting goodness, which will be reflected in heaven. God had preserved them in a land that flowed with milk and honey. And repeatedly, God had showed his love, his care. He would not allow them to be destroyed by their enemies. He would preserve them. He would fight their battles on their behalf. They got hungry. He provided them manna and quail. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. God was there. He gave them water from the rock. He was preserving and he was keeping them in his faithfulness and in his tender love. God mercifully gave them a far greater deliverance in delivering them from the bondage of sin. Now, beloved, this morning, that's what we're reminded of. We're reminded of the grievous yoke of our sinful nature, which is constantly pulling us down. It's constantly bringing us into the ways of rebellion, the ways of disobedience, and the ways of sin. We're drawn, we're enticed into the ways of lust. We're pulled into the mire of lying and deceit, 
theft, adultery. The deeper we allow ourselves to go in these ways of sin, the more that yoke pulls us down and the suffering intensifies. We look with shame at our walk. We cry out for mercy. Is there any way of deliverance? And that's the marvelous message of the gospel. There is deliverance through Christ. And God here puts it in this way. I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. God's gracious deliverance is set forth with that picture of a farmer tending his oxen. This is a moving account of God's fatherly, tender love toward his beloved children. There are those who insist that the idea of God's fatherly love was foreign in the Old Testament. The Old Testament just portrays God as a God of vengeance, a God of hatred, whereas the idea of his fatherly love doesn't come into play until well into the New Testament. This passage shows the error of that notion. And repeatedly through the prophets and the minor prophets, we have expressions similarly of the tender fatherly love that God has for his children and for his church. The portrayal of God as a father caring for and tenderly leading his son with divine compassion is on the foreground here. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. God is portrayed here as a father who loved his son and he called his son. And what does he talk about then? As they called them, so they went from him. He called them. He tenderly led them. They rejected him. They sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to graven images. He taught them. And then what did he do? Verse 3, taking them by their arms. He gently led them as a father leads his child, teaching his child how to walk, guiding his child in love. And yet, but they knew not that I healed them. But we have a beautiful picture here of God caring for and tenderly leading his son with divine compassion. But then we have the striking words, I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. Most probably that referred to the farmer at the end of the day relieving the oxen or whatever animal it was from the burden of that yoke. So that that yoke, again, a heavy piece of wood that fit over their shoulder, often extended around their neck, was placed on them so that they could pull and could pull their cart or their load. Two animals of similar size would be yoked together, and in that way they would be able to accomplish far more than they could alone. The bit, the bridle, the yoke would all come off at the end of a hard day. It would be laid aside. It would be lifted off their cheeks. And they would be able now to relax and to eat as previously they weren't able to do. And so God is saying here, in love, I've taken that yoke and I've removed it. I've taken it off. Lifted it above your cheeks. Now God knows that yoke that we ourselves have put on in Adam. And God knows that we deserve that yoke because of our sin in Adam and because of our actual sins. God knows that we deserve to die as a result of that yoke. But what does the Lord do with regard to 
his children who have self-inflicted themselves with this grievous yoke of sin, death, and hell. Jesus does more than any master could ever do with his animal. While the master would take it off and relieve his animals temporarily, what does Jesus do? Jesus takes that yoke off us. He takes it on himself. And he bears it to the cross in order that we will never have to come under that yoke again. What a wonder. What a deliverance. What a marvelous love. God gives Jesus Christ, who pushes back that yoke not merely, but removes it, takes it off, so that we can know the joy and the wonder of the victory that is ours in Him. So that we can feast, so that we can eat, so that we can rest and know true rest. Come unto me, ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give thee rest. He removes that yoke. And then takes it on himself. Taking upon himself that burden. And presses forward with that yoke. In perfect obedience to his heavenly father. Overcoming the powers of sin and darkness and rebellion. For us. In order that he might give his life then. In our place. And cover all our sins. And give us rest. Everlasting rest. In life everlasting. God emphasizes here his mercy toward his church and toward his people. God has not dealt with them roughly. They cannot allege that God has treated them severely. It's true they've been chastised for their sin. They've experienced hardships when they walk contrary to his way and to his will. And those days are going to come again because they continue yet to turn away from him. They turn their faces away even as he continues to show that love and that tender mercy and that care. But they can blame no one but themselves. Jehovah has been kind. He's been good. He's been gracious. He's been as a father to his children, tenderly removing their burden and giving them opportunity to feast on his goodness, his love, his mercy. And we know how he did that historically. He opened the way into the land of Canaan. He gave them to know the wonder and the blessedness of the bounty of the land. He conquered all their foes. In his marvelous mercy, he gave them cities that they didn't build. He gave them to know the wonder of his friendship and his fellowship as he established the tabernacle and as he built the temple dwelling with his people, raising up kings who would lead and to guide them, prophets who would bring his word. And ultimately he gave in the fullness of time his own son as the great deliverer. And so God says in that context, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. God is referring there to, again, his goodness and his mercy toward us in Christ. God's the only one able to draw men to himself. None can come to him except he draw them. That's John 6, verse 44. And God draws them, he says, with cords of a man. The importance of that in this context is to contrast the way in which the devil and the wicked deal with men. They deal with men as though they're slaves, as though they're animals. They deal with men in cruelty, with cords as of a man, 
God didn't deal with the people as though they were animals like the Egyptians. God did not deal with them as slaves. He treated them as his children in love. And we can visualize this as we have little ones. The picture here that's set forth of teaching them to walk, taking them by the hand, making sure they don't fall, administering healing when they're sick, feeding them when they're not able to feed themselves. Without his care, Israel would have perished. But here we have the tender care, the love of a father for the son whom he's called out of Egypt, whom he's now brought as his own into the land of Canaan. Israel complained concerning God's treatment of them. They didn't realize and acknowledge God's goodness. Like the prodigal son, they went their own way. And that's why Hosea had to be given an unfaithful wife. You remember, Hosea the prophet was given Gomer. And God said to him, you need to marry this woman because you need to understand what I'm experiencing in my relationship with Israel. And so Hosea marries Gomer. And what does Gomer do? Gomer goes astray. After having three children, she forsakes Hosea and her children. She lives an adulterous, wicked life. But then God says to Hosea, Hosea, you need to take her back. You need to restore her again in love. Even as Israel has forsaken me, they've cast me off. And yet, what do I do? What's my response? In love, I embrace her. I take her back. I restore her. And that's the picture that is set forth here. Israel, like Hosea's wife, turned away to a life of shame, sin, and death. A life that would end up in hell without repentance. Israel was murmuring. They were speaking evil of God. They wouldn't own up to their sin. Instead, they blamed everything on someone else, and especially blaming God for their circumstances. They weren't satisfied with the good land God gave them. God affirms now his goodness, his love, his mercy. He drew them to himself with a power that is the power of his saving love. The cords of a man. But then he intensifies that with bands of love. We have in the Hebrew there a parallelism where the second part further explains the first. And we understand how the second part is stronger than the first. It adds a dimension there. The fact that God was drawing them with love. This was his love. This was his favor. This was his goodness. And the reference is to the loving kindness, the tender covenant mercies of God. God had no reason to draw them to himself. He had no reason to save them. He could have just let them go. We're reminded here of Deuteronomy 7. Verses 7 to 9. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. They were not more goodly than others. They were not more holy than others, not more deserving than others. Israel had no claim on God, none whatsoever. And nor do we. 
But God took them to himself with his bands of love. He loved them. And because he loved them, he drew them. That's all. Because he loved them. And his love for them is not based on anything of themselves, only his eternal good pleasure. His motivation, grace alone. His good favor in Christ. God led them with good deeds of love and of mercy. He opened the waters so they could pass through the Red Sea. He did many mighty wonders demonstrating his goodness. He showered his goodness upon them, giving them prophet, priests, and kings that led and guide them. He used his government in the laws that were established at Mount Sinai through Moses and Joshua, their leaders. All were means of God's love and God's care and God's compassion. He raised up kings like David and Solomon. All expressions of his love, his mercy, his care. And beloved, as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, that's the same message that we hear from God. This isn't just the story of Israel here in Hosea. This is the story of you. It's the story of me. This is your life. This is my life. God's covenant mercy shown toward us. Not because of anything of us, not because of anything of our deserving, but all of mercy. We don't deserve the least of God's blessing. We're not more goodly than any other people. We're not more holy than others. We're undeserving. We're grievous sinners. And our sins rise up. We have shame. We have guilt as a result. By nature, we have no special claim on the love of God. But God loved us because he loved us. That's the only reason. Nothing more. From eternity, he chose to himself a people upon whom he would set his love. And he will preserve them. And he will keep them. And he draws us to himself. By his grace and love in Jesus Christ. He gives us to know a Savior. He works by his Spirit in our hearts, giving us to know that he's our Father and that we can love him and that we can serve him and we delight in him. And he picks us up. He relieves the burden of our sin and of our guilt. And he gives us to know the love and the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. He teaches us to walk. He lifts us up in order that we might be drawn to himself with those cords of love and gives us to know that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Our security is found in his faithfulness alone. And then he nurses our souls and he feeds us with life everlasting. And that's the goodly nourishment that we read of here. I laid meat unto them. Now we know there's a physical aspect, but more importantly here, the spiritual. God gave them food. In abundance. He removed their heavy yoke. He put meat before them so that they could eat. And he didn't just give them bread, he gave them meat to restore their strength along with that bread. He supplied them with food convenient for their body, but also their souls. He gave them Christ out of the rock. And the true meat that he laid before them was his loving kindness, his tender mercy. They were babes in need of nourishment. They didn't know what nourishment they needed. But he did. The God who drew them to himself knew precisely what they needed. And what did he feed them with? Promises. He fed them with faithfulness. He assured them of his goodness and his mercy that would fail never. 
He set before them the true bread, Jesus Christ. And beloved, same with you and with me. We're not much different from Israel. The Israelites forgot repeatedly that it was God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And God had to remind them again and again of his goodness and his mercy that failed never. God did not take that forgetfulness lightly. He punished their sins with death and chastened them severely. But he kept his covenant. Moses made intercessory prayers on behalf of the Israelites. And God heard those prayers. The prophets were used to proclaim God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And God used their labors. And he preserved faithful remnant in the midst of Israel. Now the one that intercedes for us is not Moses, it's not David. It's Jesus. God gives us his own son as our mediator. And God gives us the one who took our yoke upon himself in order that he might pay the price of our sin against God. And he redeemed us. And the result of his work for us is that he gives us spiritual nourishment. He feeds us with his grace and with his mercy and with his love. And he gives us to know that there's no no end to it. He forgives us again and again and again. He shows that kindness and that mercy despite our unfaithfulness. The meat that we eat is the body of Christ. We drink the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are given to know the marvelous nourishment that God provides in giving us a Savior from sin. The yoke is lifted. The burden has been taken. And we now know the true rest, the true freedom that is ours through His perfect work on Calvary. He took my sin. He took your sin upon Himself. And He paid the penalty. He went to hell and you're in my place in order that we might know the love of God in Jesus Christ to all eternity. That love we know this morning, our Heavenly Father, as a tender Father, taking us, drawing us to Himself by His Spirit with those cords of love and giving us to know the wonder of that love. A love only because He loved us. Out of His great love, giving us a Savior in whom we find our spiritual life. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy goodness and mercy toward us, undeserving sinners. Cause that we might know that rest, that peace, that joy, that we might know thy fatherly love and thy tender compassion, and that we might live in the conscious wonder that we have been drawn with bands of love that cannot be broken. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.